Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. Uh, Ephesians 5 is where we'll be tonight, uh, starting out from, and then we'll kind of go from there. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, marriage tonight. A Jesus' famous man embraces Christ's vision for marriage. Uh, I got to be honest with you guys, I kind of... uh, we used to have a Sunday night service every week, and uh, so I, you know I've got the ability to have energy for that all day long. Uh, and we've even had a stretch of time for a number of years where we had three services in the morning and then the Sunday night service at night. Uh, but I've been asking kind of myself, why am I so tired when it comes to the growth nights? And I'm sure some of it is I'm a little bit older than I was a couple of years ago when we had the Sunday night services. But I think what it is, is that this is all fresh new material from Sunday. Uh, With our old Sunday night service, it was just the third service or the fourth service of the day. And I would kind of come in and just like on autopilot repeat what I had said in the morning. Um, So this is taking a lot of like concentration and energy for me to kind of be here tonight. And I know the same is true for you. It's been hot out today, sunny. I'm sure some of you guys were outdoors today. So... Let's make the best effort tonight to really dig into it. How many of you guys are married men tonight as we look at this subject? Okay, so we have women, many of us uh, in the other room right now that I think deserve uh, us to really take this seriously. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. God, we're asking for that help. We pray that you'd strengthen us in it, uh, that we might be a blessing to uh, the wives that you've given to us or in the future might give to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I I looked at my wife's uh, notes for the teaching that she's giving right now next door, and I didn't read all of them. She's a very thorough teacher when she teaches a full manuscript of what she's going to share. So it's probably about 25 pages of content. But I was just sort of thumbing through them, and after I thumbed through them, I told her, I said, hey, make sure you tell some good stories about me tonight, too, (laughs) because I noticed quite a few in there of just the rougher versions of Nate, and uh, you know, that's the reality. We enter into marriage. We really don't have a great idea of what we're doing. You know, we come into marriage, and We are who we are. We perhaps have grown a lot in Jesus. Maybe we don't yet know the Lord, but through that union, we come face to face with our limitations. I remember one stretch early on in our marriage after we had our second daughter, Violet. For those of you that know me, we have three girls. Our oldest is actually getting ready to go away to college this fall, so They're growing up really quickly, but when our second daughter, Violet, was born, uh, we'd been married for, I think, about four, four and a half years, and uh, I went through a bit of a renaissance at that point in my life. Uh, I had gotten some different 
responsibilities here in the church. It really required me to learn all about organization and structure uh, in leadership. And so I was diving headlong into really becoming a hyper-organized person. And I was bringing a lot of that into my home where my wife is just trying to survive with these two brand new little children. And on top of that, I was uh, pretty overweight from years of being a youth pastor and eating like I was in high school. Uh, Well, I wasn't. And uh, a group of friends challenged me to a Biggest Loser competition, and I was discovering nutrition and health and getting lean and cut and all of that, right as my wife is dealing with probably the most physically challenging time that a woman can go through. And she just didn't like me during that season of our marriage. I was just kind of obnoxious. And it took a little while for me to realize, you know, I'm not treating her the way that I ought to be treating her. This isn't what she signed up for. I need to be a better friend to her, a better partner to her, a a better lover to her. I need to bear with her and her weaknesses. I need to grow as a man right now. And that really kicked me into a different gear of just thinking about biblical masculinity, biblical manhood, and how to really... Uh, represent Jesus well inside the confines of my home. Uh, The home that I grew up in, my dad was a great guy, is a great guy, still pastoring, uh, not a local congregation, but just kind of travels and pastors, pastors. He's kind of a rescue pastor now. Uh, I call him a church flipper. So if you've ever seen uh, like a home renovation program where they buy an old broken down home and then fix it up and then sell it, My dad kind of does that for churches that are in disrepair. That's one of his big ministries. He'll go to a church that's experienced a catastrophe or uh, something bad that happened to the pastor or they're just in a transitional time, and he'll help them. He'll calm the uh, waters for a bit and then help them get into their next day. He's a great guy. He's a godly guy. But I didn't really learn a lot about marriage from him. You know, he, he was kind of a product of his generation. His father was uh, uh, one of the more intense alcoholics I've, I've personally known. And so that led to just a, an environment in the home that was very chaotic. My father had to basically be a parent to his younger siblings for his whole childhood. And so I think a lot of that led to him just having a harder time knowing how to treat a woman, how to open up, how to do different things like that. So all that to say, as great as a guy as he is, I was kind of left to to my own devices to really pour into the word and try to see what does God have to say to me as a husband and as a man? How do I, how do we do this? So one of the big passages that is so helpful for this is Ephesians chapter 5. There's lots of places we could go in Scripture, but Ephesians 5 is a great teaching from Paul the Apostle on the subject of marriage. Now, at this point in the book of Ephesians, uh, Paul is applying big truths. So at the beginning of the book of Ephesians, his concept of Jesus is that he is the head of a body called the church. So the goal, according to Paul in Ephesians, is that the body would be extremely connected to the will of the head, that the head would be able to dictate to the body what to do, how to behave, how to act. 
and that that is our position in Christ Jesus. Uh, now, in the second half of the book of Ephesians, Paul then is explaining different ways that the head would want us to live. And in Ephesians 5, the second half of it, and on into chapter 6, um, Paul goes after three areas of society that are still delicate and sensitive today, just like they were in his day. He talks about the connection or relationship between a man and woman in marriage. He then, in chapter 6, talks about the connection between a father and his children. And then he talks about a master, in his context, the master-slave dynamic. He talks about a master with their slaves. So what you have there are in his society and culture, those who were in charge, those who were in positions of power, men, husbands, fathers, masters, um, and how they were to, if they were directed by their head, Jesus, treat those who weren't in those positions of authority, wives, women, children, and servants. And what we find is this sacrificial laying down of our lives in response to our head, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's start out the passage together. Verse 22, we'll read through the end of the chapter, but for now, at this point, we'll just read the first three verses. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, now, uh, it's obviously, uh, it's not lost on me, I, I understand that this is the portion of Ephesians 5 that Paul directs not to us here in this room, the husbands, there's no wives here today, uh, in this room, uh, but I think it's important for husbands to grapple with the commission that the apostle and the word gives to our wives, especially if we're married. Now, at first glance, this is a, a, a difficult passage for a lot of us in our modern time. You know, Jesus came along and he treated children really well. Uh, he ministered to those who were outside of the power kind of class and structure. He was a carpenter. He was a working class. Uh, and he had women in his, not apostolic team, but in his ministry team who cared for him. He taught women. That was radical for a rabbi to do. So that's Jesus. Now Paul comes along and we kind of wonder, like, is Paul reversing everything that Jesus did? No, not at all. Paul is contributing or continuing what Jesus began in this new covenant. Paul isn't contradicting Jesus, but he doesn't respond like a lot of people do, creating some kind of class war or generation war or gender war. That's not what Paul is doing. What Paul thinks is that each person in the new humanity of the church is covered by the blood of Christ and should run towards the fullest and most redeemed version of themselves. Paul did not think uh, that men, if they were Christians, should run away from the standing that God gave to them, but run more fully to the position that God gave to them. 
Uh, so he saw Christian men running toward a redeemed version of their masculinity. He envisioned men and women in the church being unified, not because they were uniform or the same, but because of the blood of Jesus. Being united in Christ doesn't mean that we are uniform in Christ. In other words, the Bible recognizes there's a difference between men and women. There's a difference in distinction and in role between men and women, and that's okay. It doesn't, that's not a message of we're not equal. That's just a message that we're not exactly the same. And I think common sense and scripture would teach us that this is the case. Now, for our purposes tonight, I'm not gonna give a big study on um, exactly how a wife submits to her husband and all that kind of stuff. That's probably the last thing a lot of us would really need, like, oh, I heard a great study about what you should do, honey, uh, tonight. Uh, but the point that I wanna draw out from these first three verses is that here you have an exhortation from Paul telling the Christian wife that her one of her main responsibilities is to uh, he uses this word submit or respectfully follow the leadership of her husband. Now, my goal isn't to give a long, drawn-out defense or explanation of biblical uh, submission. I've done that in other places. But let me give a definition of what this marital biblical submission looks like. Uh, this is my way of thinking about it biblically. The wife makes a choice. This is her decision to place herself as an equal underneath another equal. So she's not doing this because she's saying, my husband is better than me or has a higher quality than me or is smarter than me or somehow you know, is like really good at marriage better than I am at it. No, not at all. There's no like, you know, he's got a master's degree in life and I'm just, you know, got my general ed or something like that. No, it's an, as an equal, she places herself under another equal her husband, she comes under his lead like the church does for Christ. That's the example that Paul uses, right? That she's to do this just as the church submits to Christ. And she does this for a reason, for the effectiveness of the marriage and the family. All right, so that's biblical submission. And in Paul's mind and in Jesus' mind, there's just no, they can't even fathom any tyranny or brutality as a, re, as a response to or as an outflow of this concept. Paul is about to describe the husband as someone who lays down his life in sacrificial love for his bride. If a man uses Paul's words to excuse brutality or bullying or abuse, Paul would look at that man and say, you're not a Christian. What Paul sees is men on the mission of Jesus men who have allowed the gospel of Christ to penetrate their core. And so since the church works best with Christ as its head, the marriage and family also work best when the husband leads well. So this is a big deal. And the reason I'm kind of drawing it out for a second before I talk to and point out the passages about what a husband is to be is basically to just kind of say like, hey guys, like let's think about this for a second. This is a tall order for a woman, don't you think? I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to read these passages as a single Christian woman. 
I'd read them with fear and trembling. If I had a desire in my life to be married someday, it's like I'd look at those passages like I would be double, triple, quadruple checking with pastors and scholars and leaders and teachers like, is this what I think it says? Is this accurate? Am I going to have to do this? And then once I came to the conclusion, yeah, that this is scriptural, this is God's design, then I would choose so carefully who I connected myself to because I would go into it with this understanding, I gotta follow this guy. So I'm looking for someone who can lead well. So that's the first thing I wanna draw out for you guys. A Jesus famous man leads his bride well, understands that and I'm called to lead, I'm called to the position of leadership, but that's a big deal for a woman to follow a man. Now, uh, years ago, some of you guys know this, I, um, <clears throat> when, my, when my girls were younger, I was talking to a pastoral friend of mine who I actually got to spend some time with him, he's uh, down in San Luis Obispo, I got to spend some time with him this week, this last week. And I look up to him in ministry, and I, we were having a coffee together, and I asked him, I said, hey, what's been the most fruitful thing you've ever done in ministry? And he explained to me a class that he'd been doing for a dozen years or so for young men. He pastors in a college town. So it was kind of like a biblical manhood class that he taught, and he just you know, cycled hundreds of graduates through this program. And he has a couple of daughters, and he explained that some of his motivation was I'm just nervous that my girls are gonna marry someone from my church, so I just really wanna help these guys get to where they need to be. And uh, when he shared that with me, I thought, yeah, that's really good. And the Lord just put on my heart as I kind of processed it and prayed about it to write a book on the subject of biblical manhood called No Nonsense, The No-Nonsense Biblical Man. In that book, there's a short little thing that I just wanted to quote for a second here tonight to help us think about what life is like under a good man's leadership versus under a bad man's leadership. I wrote, the good husband holds his wife out as his standard of beauty and enjoys her and her alone sexually. He's a covenantal man who is not going to go back on his promises. When he said, till death do us part, he actually meant it. Like Job before him, this man makes a covenant with his own eyes so he will not lust after another woman or gaze at them on his computer screen. He understands adultery begins in the heart so he protects and guards his heart, making sure he pours his affection and attention upon his wife. His wife feels incredibly free around him, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and sexually. She grows under his care and love. She feels protected by him. She feels like he loves her and would do anything for her. When he makes a financial decision, she doesn't blink because she knows he will put her and the family first. She's thankful for the friends he has selected because they're godly and encourage him in his walk with God and relationship with her. She is confident that if he were to slip into sin, he would receive the rebukes of spiritual leadership in his life because they are very much part of his life. She is happy because he's not an island, but an open book, allowing Christ-like men access into his life. She trusts this man. 
Uh, the bad husband is cruel in all his ways. The pinnacle of his cruelty is that he strays from his home like a bird that strays from its nest, Proverbs 27, eight. He is intentionally often away from the house working ridiculously long hours at play with all of his hobbies and out with his friends. Even when he is home, he really isn't. He occupies himself with his phone or video games or the television. He basically lives like a single man. He cares not for oneness with his wife and doesn't think twice about building an inner circle with her. His heart is not open to her. He's a closed door. He accumulates bad friends and has a bad temper. Alcohol and drugs are often his coping mechanism. He doesn't lead well, doesn't like church, and isn't willing to submit to any spiritual authority. His eyes are constantly wandering, and pornography is a part of his regular routine. This man is destroying a life. His wife wilts under, her, under his leadership. She prays daily for God to change his heart. But like Pharaoh before him, his heart will not budge and only gets worse. She knows she can't talk to him about money, the kids, or her thoughts. It's hard enough feeling secure as a woman in this day and age, but her marriage to him only makes her feel more insecure with her appearance. She often sits alone at church and feels she has to attend an all-female small group because there's no chance he would ever attend one with her. She grows discouraged watching him spend their money on his pursuits and toys. She is so very tired. So... You know, that to me was just kind of a moment of just kind of thinking, trying to have a vision for what it's like and what we want to be. What kind of man do we want to be? What kind of effect or impact do we want to have on the precious wives that God has given to us? And I think all of us are here tonight because we'd say, I want to be like the first man and not at all like the second man. Amen? All right, so the first thing I wanted to share was just that the husband, he must lead. Okay, but uh, secondly, <clears throat> the husband must love. And for this, we look at uh, Ephesians 5, 25 to 31. We'll just look at the 25th verse. It's just so weighty for a moment. Paul said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, so no big deal. Um, you know, there's Jesus. He loved his bride, the church, uh, all the way to the point of giving himself up for her, all right? We just sang about the love of God just a few minutes ago, and we talked about you gave it all for love, all right, none of us could ever look at our wives and say, I am giving it my all. You know how I know? Because we're alive still. Jesus gave it his literal all, right? He went all the way to the point of death for the ones that he loved. So some people have pointed out, hey, as difficult as the commission to the brides might be, the commission to the husbands from the apostle is a much taller order. We've got to imitate the love of Jesus for his church to our brides. This is a powerful uh, reality. We have to remember to, like Jesus, lay down our lives for our wives. Uh, no, we know this about Jesus. He laid down his life for the sheep, John chapter 10. He endured for us. 
Uh, Isaiah prophesied of Jesus that he would be despised and rejected and full of sorrows and grief, stricken and smitten by God, that he'd be afflicted and wounded and chastised and oppressed and cut off and crushed for his bride. And so for us as modern Christian husbands, we want to allow Jesus' willingness and love and sacrifice to be our model of love for our brides. So Paul urges us to do that, which is, uh, was radically uncustomary in that era to sacrificially love our wives. I mean, this flies for us today in our modern context, but in the context Paul was ministering in, wives were not thought of in this way. They were thought more on the lines of property than someone that you would lay down your life for. It's only Christianity that has changed the paradigm of what a healthy relationship would look like. So let's ask the question, how can we, uh, as husbands, how can we love our wives sacrificially? How How can we do that? How can we love the way that Christ loved his church? Well, kind of a way to think about it is just to ask the question, how did Jesus sacrificially love his church and draw on those lessons? So what did Jesus do first? You know, God had made the promise from the very beginning. Uh, Right when the fall occurred, the promise began to be whispered that there was one coming who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelion, the first whisper of the gospel. And the whole Old Testament is building up to the point where the second person of the triune Godhead will take on flesh and become one of us. And so the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, begins with a genealogy tracing the line of Christ all the way to the Son of God was born. And you remember the angel said to Joseph there in that opening chapter, you'll name him Jesus, you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Jesus, the first thing that he did really in a sense, you could say he incarnated. He became like us. He became one of us, and by incarnating, what Jesus was doing was leaving a much greater position. I mean, when Jesus came to earth, you read those first few chapters of what his life was like. You've got death of babies under two years of age. You've got poverty. There's no room in the inn. You've got running for their lives into Egypt because they were being persecuted. You've got total hardship. Where Jesus had come from in eternity was a much more peaceful, blessed environment. He stepped out of his position of total comfort and ease and peace and security to enter into volatility, to enter into chaos, to enter into vulnerability. As I'm saying this, some of you guys might be thinking, this sounds a lot like an argument with my wife. Chaos, vulnerability, confusion. I don't know what you're saying to me right now, you know, kind of things. But a Christian husband leaves his position of comfort for his bride. So there are times that we have to allow ourselves to become more uncomfortable for our wives. I talked about finances, you know, just a second ago in the comparison between the good husband and the bad husband. 
that's a great example of a major area that a husband can love his wife by being uncomfortable for her. Partly through provision, right? You know, working hard by the sweat of your brow, the Bible says you will eat bread and taking that responsibility. I know we live in a society and culture that likes to make everything even, Stephen, but I think the Bible, and I don't know, at least myself, I'm a little old school. I like to, as a man, be the one that is primarily, at least, providing, taking care of the needs of our home and our children. And that, for me, means that there will be times of sacrifice. You know, I'm, uh, I'm kind of one of these guys like, I, I like things, you know. I, I like little t- new technological devices and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, when, like, Christmas comes around, you know, it's, it's not hard for me to, like, populate a, a gift list for the people in my life that are like, what do you want this year? You know, I'm like, oh, oh let me tell you, you know. And I can easily point out to them things that I'm interested in. But there are just times where you have to make that call that, you know what, I'm going to, sacrifice financially for my bride or for my family. I'm sure when you got married, you probably began to realize that you and your wife had totally different financial priorities than each other. You didn't just come into it with the same exact perspective on where the money should go. So you might think that a 70-inch TV is just like a wise financial investment And she might be thinking, that's crazy. Why would you ever need something that huge? I've tried to explain this to my wife. Like, it's just bigger is better. Uh, But uh, she's not buying it. So sometimes we have to leave our position of comfort. That might come in the form of our time, our treasure, our toys. But we have to realize that part of being a good husband is getting outside of our comforts and serving her. Okay, In leaving his position of comfort, like I said, Jesus then incarnated, right? He became one of us. He became one of us so that he could become one with us. Now, when we think about our wives, of course, we know that we're not going to incarnate um, in any kind of real true way. You know, you're a man, you're not going to be able to become a woman. No matter what they say, it's impossible. Uh, But Peter said in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, that husbands are to seek to live with their wives in an understanding way. I think this, to me, speaks of that incarnational way of Jesus. Jesus became one of us. You know, the Bible says that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He understands us. We have a God who gets what we're like because he became one of us. And a good husband, I think, seeks to know and learn and comprehend what his wife is about. Um, He wants to get into what she's into. He wants to listen. And through the years, he wants to learn about this person that he's married to. You know, there's a whole, like, section of music that I'm into now that uh, it's all because of Christina. Like, I never would have been interested in it at all. It's not hard enough. It's not strong enough. It's not, there's not enough testosterone in it for my taste. You know, when Christmas time comes around, I know that we're going to be listening to some Amy Grant, 
Christmas music, you know? And it's just not my jam until now it is. Because it's just been a little, and I'm just giving a cheesy example, but a, a little step of incarnation towards my wife, trying to understand who she is and what she's about. But another way that Jesus loved his church was through patience. Um, if you really think about the way that Jesus loved his church, when Jesus died on the cross, I'll just ask it this way, were we yet in existence? You know, No, not really. I mean, God knew about us. He's outside of time and space. But the church was not yet. That was something future. He died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, ascended, and then 10 days later, the Spirit poured out on the church. So the church existed 50 days after his death. But when he died, we did not exist. We weren't part of the church. And when Jesus called his disciples, you know, what did he do? Did he kind of like look around and he's like, you know, I need somebody who's going to be like a great lead guy, so Peter. And I need someone who's going to be like that soft, sensitive conscience for the church, so John. And I need someone who's going to be really evangelistic and kind of being the voice of the outsider, so Andrew. I mean, he might have had some of those thoughts, but these guys were far from polished. They were far from there. They had not arrived. They were not apostles when Jesus went to them and began bringing them onto his team. And he was just incredibly patient. He saw something that they could become before they could see what they would become. And I think this is a great thing for a Christian husband to bring into his life, not to be overly hung up on the imperfections and flaws of your bride. You know, in some circles, you know, in the church, it's like every time the husbands get talked about, it's like we're just like Neanderthals, and every time you talk about the women, they're just like angels on earth, but like we're married, right? We know that's not always true. They're not always angelic beings. They have their flaws and their faults and their flesh and their temptations and their sins as well. The feminine way isn't always the right way. But the reality is I think we can emulate Jesus and we can be patient with our brides. We can recognize just as Jesus looked at Peter when Peter was denying him those three times and Jesus knew, well, I'm not done with you and I still have work to perform in your life, we can look at our brides and know God's not done with them. They're not fully arrived. They're still growing and being changed and transformed. And to savor the reality of what they will be on that great and final day, that resurrection, where they are glorified just like we are glorified in the sight of God, so to be patient with that. And then I think another thing that Jesus did, <clears throat> this is, should be an obvious one, but, but maybe overlooked, Jesus spent a lot of time with his bride. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, um, you know, a lot of the gospels has to do with what he taught publicly and his ministry to the multitudes, but the vast majority of Jesus' time did not go to the multitudes, did not go to the tax collectors and sinners, did not go to his teaching ministry. The vast majority of his time went to his disciples. 
He ate with them, slept with them, walked with them, talked with them. They saw him in private. They saw him in public. He spent time with his bride. And, you know, as a church, we've struggled with Jesus's counterintuitive approach to discipleship, you know, ever since. We, we would like to accomplish what Jesus accomplished in making disciples, but only if it can fit in a once a month kind of class together. But Jesus didn't do it that way. It was just life together. That was his program. So we can do the same thing. We can lay down our lives by spending time with our brides. You know, life is hectic, life is busy, life is tiresome. So you have to work hard to protect times together, even when you're really tired. You know, I know uh, one of the best pieces of advice that Christina and I got when we were going through our premarital counseling program was uh, somebody told us, they said, just book it right now, start going on a date every week. Just have that time together. Don't try to spend a bunch of money, just be creative, do it on a budget, but just make sure you block out some time each week to, for two or three hours, just be alone together. And at the point that we were, you know, given this counsel, uh, we were kind of like seeing each other every night like that, you know? It's like you're in that infatuation zone where it's just like, I can't wait to get done with work because we're gonna hang out, we're gonna talk, and we're just gonna be together, you know, kind of thing. So it was like, man, I think like six or seven nights a week, even when I was working till 10 at night doing church work, it's like after that, like let's try to get together for at least a little bit to see each other. So to hear like, you really need to be disciplined about making sure that you spend time together, it kind of seemed like, oh, really, like, that just seems like it's gonna happen. But we obeyed, and we just started putting that into our rhythm. We might have hung out five nights in a row, but the sixth night, that was the official date night. But pretty soon, what we started realizing was that as the speed of life picked up, as babies were added to the mix, as responsibilities expanded and grew, as our relational network expanded, we began realizing that that, even singular time was something we had to fight for, that it didn't come as naturally or easily as life matured and developed. And so I'm so thankful that we installed that early on in our lives together. And even still to this day, I know that it's on me. You know, Christina, she's not the one in our relationship who's going to save up a little bit of money, to be able to organize a little two or three day trip away, you know, once a year or something like that, just to be alone together. But she loves that more than anything. And so it's like, man, that's on me to say, hey, I know my schedule's crazy. We got all this stuff going on, but I wanna spend time with you, all right? So a good husband, a Christian husband spends time like Jesus did with his disciples with his bride. And then finally, of course, Jesus died for his bride. So a Christian husband should die for his bride. Uh, now, Jesus' death was a humiliating kind death on the cross. And I think the way that I want to think about this, because we can often say to ourselves, like, oh, I would, if, if I had to, I would die for my bride. All right. So she's very happy that if she was on the train tracks, 
and a speeding train was coming in her direction, that you would be the hero and push her out of the way and you would die in her place. She's very happy that you would do that kind of sacrifice, but you know, she also wants you to like set down the remote control from time to time and die in that way, all right? So she's looking for little deaths as well as a willingness for you to do or pay the ultimate price. And a lot of times in marriage, uh, we gotta go through a little bit of death for our brides. You know, marriage isn't always a peaceful or enjoyable experience. You know, through marriage, a lot of the more serious trials and pains of life can happen. It's in the context of a family. You can experience the death of a child, infertility. Sometimes in marriage, someone's battling mental illness. Sins that you commit when you're single just kind of send a little ripple throughout your life in church, but they send shockwaves throughout a family. And in the midst of those types of things, you gotta take up your cross and be willing to, like Jesus, die for your bride. So I just think about this verse you know, 25 exhortation that a husband would die for his bride, and it just to me is um, it's what we need. You know, you, sometimes people will flippantly say, you know, what the world really needs is, and you fill in the blank, but what if the world was filled with men who loved their wife like this? I mean, that would just be a totally different world that we'd be living in. All right, let's look, though, at what Paul said next in verse 26 and 27 to continue on in this theme, and then I think we'll probably wind things down. He said in verse 26, he said that he might sanctify her. This is Jesus, what he's doing for the church. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All right, so... In talking to these husbands, uh, talking to us about the need for a sacrificial love for our brides, Paul keeps on holding out Jesus as the the example in these two verses. Uh, Jesus loves his church, Jesus said, or Paul said, by sanctifying his church, washing her with the water of the word, preparing her to be holy and without blemish. He tirelessly, in other words, works towards his bride's beauty Jesus' goal is stated very clearly. His goal is to present the church to himself in splendor. So he's working hard to present a radiant church. And what Paul is saying is that the Christian husband is to have the same goal in mind when he's loving his wife. He's to work tirelessly for her radiance and beauty. She's a soul, in other words, that is in need of sanctification, perspective, and growth, and she needs loving support to become all that Christ has designed her to be. She is in pursuit, whether she knows it or not, of her best self, and the husband is integral to that pursuit. He's to sacrificially love her by having a game plan for her splendor. She beautified herself on the wedding day, 
but now the husband is to spend the marriage beautifying her. All right, so just think about this, you know, concept. Like, you guys all know that, I mean, it's hard for us maybe to think about ourselves like this, like the bride of Christ maybe is a little uncomfortable for you or something, but just, you know, get over it for a second. And Jesus is doing what he needs to do in all of our lives to beautify us, okay, to, to sanctify us, to grow us. And think about the level of patience that he displays in order to do that work in our lives. And if I could say it like this, the level of patience that we've grown accustomed to expect from Jesus in that process. I mean, how many times have you or I just kind of flippantly said to the Lord something like, oh, Lord, you know, I'm sorry that I haven't read the word for the last couple of months, and so pray that you forgive me. I'm gonna start reading the Bible now. And we're, it's like the tone and everything, it's just like, can you imagine a wife saying that to her husband? Like, I'm sorry that I just left for a couple of months, but I'm back now, you know? Like, we just wouldn't think about it that way. But Jesus has been so incredibly patient with us in order to beautify and grow and sanctify us. We're to have the same spirit and perspective when it comes to our brides. I remember hearing one guy, one older man who ran a marriage ministry, kind of traveling from church to church, and uh, he stood up on the platform with his uh, bride. They were old, older, you know, probably in their 70s or so, and um, he just was like praising her, and he was talking about what a beautiful person she was and is, and then he said this thing, I'll never forget it. And at first, I remember being kind of offended by it, but then he fleshed it out, and I began understanding a little bit more of what he meant. He said, and I want you guys to know, I did that to her. I was like, what are you, you're taking credit for who she is? But then he began to explain this passage, that Jesus did what he needed to do, does what he needs to do to sanctify and grow and beautify his bride. And this husband had taken seriously the commission to beautify this woman, to help her become what she needed to become. All right, so what are some of the ways that we can beautify our brides like Jesus beautifies us? Well, one way that I would suggest is a believing husband beautifies his bride through prayer. You know, Jesus constantly prayed for his disciples. He prayed with his disciples. He prayed about his disciples. And I think Christian husbands are to do the same thing today. I'm sure that when you got married, if you were a Christian at the time that you got married, you probably prayed about it a little bit, right? You know, is this the right person? Am I really supposed to go through with this? Jesus did the same thing with the apostles. He went up to a mountain and he prayed and asked the Father, who are my guys? And then he invited the 12 to be allegiant to him, and then he prayed for them. He'd go up to that mountain again while they were on the waters rowing and all of that. He'd be praying for his disciples. He invited them into moments of prayer with him, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we are to lovingly bring our wives to God in prayer. We're to ask God for wisdom and grace and how to treat them, and we're to pray uh, together, all right? Marriage is a complex thing. We need to go to God. We need God's help. We need God's grace and God's strength. So we're to 
lift up our wives in prayer. I'd encourage you guys to, if you're married, I'd encourage you to pray with your wife. Um, uh, For some reason or another, this has kind of been a thing that a lot of Christian men have just not done or thought to do, and I don't want to berate or belittle anybody for it. It might just be that nobody ever modeled that for you or ever talked to you uh, about that. But your wife is the most important person in your life, and to go to God together can be a powerful experience. I remember when I was a youth pastor, uh, I, there was this, you know, there were always these little couples that were forming, you know, in the high school group, you know, and as a youth pastor, you're always trying to break them up, you know, you're just like, oh, this is dumb, you guys need to get over this. But I remember there's one little couple that were kind of doing their thing, and the mother of the daughter or the girl in this relationship, she was kind of one of these hopeless, romantic Christian ladies. I think she read a lot of Christian romance novels and stuff like that. And so she was really excited about the relationship, and I was really not excited about the relationship. And I remember she came to me one time, and she's like, Nate, it is so great. These two kids, you know, they were like 14 or 15 or something like that. These two kids, they pray together so much. They pray together so much. And first of all, I was like, I got my doubts about how much praying is going on. But... (laughs) What I shared with her is I said, I said, actually, that, that actually makes me nervous because outside of sexual connection, prayer is one of the most intimate things that you can do with another person. They need to be praying about each other at this stage of their lives, but the more they pray together, the harder it's gonna be for them to think clearly about whether they should you know, really be with each other. I don't know if that was the right thing to say to her or not. It didn't go over all that well. But um, the point is that I'm trying to make is to illustrate just how important it is to pray with your bride. You're supposed to be with her. And <clears throat> I'd encourage you to do it. I know for me, this was kind of an area in my life where I respect my wife so much. And um, to me, you know, I, I think so highly of her walk with God, and I don't want to let her down. And I think early on in our marriage, I felt almost intimidated praying with her. You know, it just came so naturally for her. She was so strong in it, and I perhaps wasn't as, you know, strong as she was in prayer. Or I just felt a little timid about leading in that kind of way. But I would really encourage you to take that risk, be vulnerable, and say, hey, can we, is there a time each week or each day or each night where we could just pray a little bit? Um, And this will be a great help for you in life because a married couple is always going through things. It might be stuff that you're going through, you know, with each other, but also just responsibilities and burdens, pains, difficulties. You know, right now we're getting ready, to, like I said earlier, to ship our oldest daughter off to college. That's a prayer concern that we have. We're praying together for a provision, but also just the emotional complexity of saying goodbye to a kid, the transition of Christina's life now changing more than my life changes with the kids departing, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's been so good to pray to God about these things together. Our our pattern is to pray together on Saturday mornings for like 45 minutes or an hour together. And we just pray about the different relationships and responsibilities in our lives. It's never enough time, but it's a great placeholder. And we can pray at other times if 
uh, we end up getting time, but that has just been a good rhythm for us. Okay, a believing husband also beautifies his wife through the word. You know, uh, Jesus does this, obviously, it says here in the text that he washes his bride with the water of the word. Um, He speaks and teaches, communicates scripture to his church. Uh, Jesus is, you know, he's still loving his church with the word. He gives us apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers to give us his word, to purify us, to grow us, to beautify us. He's dying to get his word into our hearts. And the Christian husband wishes to allow the word of God an increasing voice in his marriage. All right, so one thing I would encourage all of you guys in is to take a leadership role throughout your life in choosing what church you're gonna go to and be part of. A lot of Christian men will just kind of punt this decision to their wives who will often make that decision, no disrespect, based on how the children are enjoying that environment. Um, And that is something a Christian man should consider, but a Christian man needs to be thinking first about, is this a place where the word of God is proclaimed and am I being spiritually fed through the word as it's delivered in this place because as I'm growing, it will trickle down into my entire family, all right? So that, that's really important. It's, I think, terrible for a Christian man to allow himself to go to a fellowship where his soul is starved because the kids are having a good time. So I'd encourage you to always you know, take the lead in uh, that area of your life, but also try to introduce the word more and more into your marriage and into your relationships. So maybe there's, you know, a Bible teacher that you and your wife both appreciate, you know, that you can listen to and then talk about like, hey, did you hear this, the last sermon that came out? Uh, Reading books together. I know that my wife is recommending a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller to all of your wives tonight, so I should probably recommend it to you guys also. But reading a book like that together, um, even if you're not just sitting there reading simultaneously, but just on your own, but then talking about it. What did you get out of it? What's God saying to you? Just the simple thing of asking each other, what are you reading in the Bible right now? You know, what, what's been standing out to you right now? What's God been saying to you right now from his word? Uh, bring the word of God into your marriage. Uh, and then another thing that a believing husband does in beautifying his bride, just two more and then we'll wrap it up, is he <clears throat> beautifies his bride through his own walk. You know, Jesus always did that which pleased the Father. He was loving his church, loves his church by being obedient to the Father. And the Christian husband should be, in a sense, like Jesus, in constant pursuit of God's best for his life. And a wife will feel safe because of this man's pursuit of God, like I talked about earlier in the comparison between the two different types of men. Uh, This has been a really important component to our marriage because um, you know, my devotional life can always grow or be better, but to be frank, it's always from the very beginning of my walk with Jesus when I was 18, it's always been a very consistent part of my life. 
Um, like I said, it could be better at different seasons, but Christina would be shocked if I went two days without having a personal quiet time. I'd have to be really sick or something like that for that to happen. And that has been, I think, as she's explained it to me, a gift that I've given to her that's helped her feel safe in marriage. Because as time has gone on, there's been a track record of moments where the word has confronted me and where I've had to go to her and say, hey, I met with our father in heaven this morning (laughs) and he pointed some stuff out to me and I'm sorry for this or I'm sensing that. And it's been a great gift to her and has helped her feel more safe and that she can follow my lead. So give that to your bride. Beautify her through your own walk with him. Be a model, an example. And she might not have that kind of drive. You know, she might not really want to have a devotional life or to, you know, again, sometimes we speak in stereotypes as if it's the women who really want to seek God and the men kind of struggle to do so. It might be the other way around in your context or in your marriage, but set that tone, be that example. And then lastly, a believing husband beautifies his bride through his words, the things that he actually says. You know, Jesus spoke life into his disciples, and he continues to speak life to us. Jesus spoke words of exhortation and encouragement, and those words have lifted up thousands of Christians over the ages. And the Christian husband, I think, does the same. This is different than just inviting God's word into your marriage. That's a really good thing, and that's the foundation but you also want to be speaking words of encouragement and life and love and support to your bride. Use your words not as a weapon, but as a tool. Uh, Build up, don't tear down. Uh, In the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter one, the Shulamite woman comes to Solomon, her future husband, and she's just a basket of insecurities. I mean, really, that's what it is. It seems that reading between the lines, her family had treated her harshly, had made her uh, take care of uh, farming responsibilities. She was an outdoor worker, and she was sensitive about that because in a culture that valued lighter skin, her skin had been burnt by the sun, and she felt badly about herself. But Solomon just unlocked his mouth, and he started praising her. He talked about how beautiful she was and how she was like a mare among Pharaoh's uh, horses, you know, like the one girl horse amongst hundreds of male horses. Like, you're just beautiful, desirable, and she just began developing into a confident woman who was free in her love with her husband. So our words really matter to our brides. And I'd encourage you to beautify your bride through your words. All right, let's close by reading the rest of the chapter together. We don't have time to really make comments about it tonight. But in the same way, verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, quoting from Genesis, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two 
shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me give you guys a little homework assignment um, to, uh, to let you go tonight. My, my wife's over there teaching a study from Genesis chapter 2 tonight. And uh, last summer, we had a marriage uh, conference here at the church, <clears throat> and Christina and I were asked to give a teaching. And so we talked and talked and talked, and then I went and wrote a, a short sermon, and then we kind of a rift off of that sermon. She is teaching that sermon tonight to your wives, expanding on it and giving a feminine perspective on it. And it's called uh, having or developing a vision for marriage, developing a vision for marriage. Uh, I've written it at nateholdridge.com if you wanna search for it there and just read it. Or you can listen to it at the calvary.com archive. Just look up the conference on the teachings page, and you can listen to that teaching. I'd encourage you to do one or the other, read it or listen to it, so that you can more uh, easily converse with your wife if she's listened to Christina's teaching, and together formulate even further your vision as a couple for your marriage together. All right? So just a... Just kind of a, a little word of wisdom there for you, a little assignment that I think will help you as she's processing what she's learned as well. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.